This is the Quantum Tech Pod, brought to you by Inside Quantum Technology, covering industry analysis, data, and market forecasting for quantum technology markets worldwide. Now, here's your host, Christopher Bishop. Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Quantum Tech Pod. I'm delighted you're listening. Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, depending on where you're sitting on the planet. My guest today is Bob Kuka. He's the chief scientist at Continuum. Bob is a Belgian theoretical physicist and logician who is professor of quantum foundations, logics, and structures at Oxford University until 2020. That year, he left Oxford to become chief scientist at Cambridge Quantum Computing. After the merger with Honeywell Quantum Solutions, the company became Continuum, where Bob is now chief scientist. Ilias Khan, CEO of Continuum, has described Bob as a world-leading authority in quantum computing. Bob pioneered categorical quantum mechanics, quantum picturalism, ZX calculus, DiscoCat model for natural language, and quantum natural language processing, QNLP. He's also a founding father of the quantum physics and logic community and conference series. His company, Continuum, is one of the world's largest integrated quantum computing companies. They've been described, actually, as the apple of quantum, if you will. Science-led and enterprise-driven, Continuum unites Cambridge Quantum's best-in-class software with Honeywell Quantum Solutions' high-performing trapped-ion hardware. Their goal is to accelerate quantum computing and the development of applications across chemistry, cybersecurity, finance, and optimization. So welcome, Bob, and thanks for joining me. Hello. Glad to be here. So, Bob, I always like to start the podcast by asking my guest to share a bit about their own personal quantum journey. And my objective is twofold, to give our audience certainly a sense of what you did before you joined Cambridge Quantum and then Continuum, but also to orient our listeners more broadly to the fact that there are many ways and various paths that people have taken to get into the field of quantum information science. So could you please share with our listeners a bit about your background and your path so far, like where you grew up, where you went to school and what you studied, and any insight into settings where you worked or did research? So I grew up in a town in Belgium. You probably won't even... You won't have heard the name, but you would have heard the, the beer they produce, maybe. It's called Duvel or Duvel. So that's my hometown beer. And then I moved to Brussels to study. And uh, I was very undecided what I wanted to study. In, in the end, I ended up studying architecture and engineering together. But then uh, when, when I had to do some sort of internship in the real world, I didn't really like it. And so <laughs> I moved to physics and, and, and maths. Uh, I did both together, more or less. Uh, ended up doing a PhD in physics. But so my field then was very much quantum foundations. I was very much interested in like really understanding quantum mechanics as its very foundations. Uh, this, this was in the early to mid-90s, so people weren't even really talking about quantum computing yet. But at the time, I mean, uh, doing quantum foundations, as I didn't know, because there was not really internet yet, neither to look things up. Right. Uh, uh, I wasn't aware that actually it was not hard to get a job in the area, but there was not sim- uh, there was no single postdoc or whatever in the area. So you couldn't get a job. So I ended <laughs> up unemployed. And uh, then I kind of reinvented myself as a logician. Uh, and and uh, I mean, uh, I got some traction. Political constellation uh, was such that I actually could get a fellowship in Belgium. Then political constellation changed. <laughs> no fellowship anymore. Oh, uh, no. Then I went to Imperial College. But I managed to get some sort of golden handshake. Uh, which got me into Imperial College for a while with Chris Isham, working towards quantum gravity mainly. And then I started to do a lot of category theory already. And then I was at McGill in the category theory group. Hmm. But, but 
still, it looked very bleak for me academically by all means. So I walked into the office of some uh, Prakash Palangadhan and I said, can I do a second PhD, uh, second PhD in, uh, in, in computer science? Because wherever I am here with these quantum foundations and this category theory, that's going nowhere. And then he called Samson Abramsky and then Samson Abramsky offered me a postdoc in computer science at Oxford. Wow. Out of the blue, without even having applied for it. And the reason was, so it's, it's really a, a comedy of accidents. The reason was that the computer science people had been developing something called linear logic, which is a sort of new kind of logic, which has a little bit the linear structure of Hilbert space. And Hilbert space was a natural model for that logic. So this, that by then, people were talking already a little bit about quantum computing. So these people in computer science were thinking, well, maybe there's something that we can do with our logic for quantum computing. And since I knew category theory and I knew logic and I knew quantum, I seemed to be the perfect person to, to get involved in that. So that's how I ended up at Oxford. Uh, like I say, it was a computer science department. I had nothing to do with computer science whatsoever. <laughs> uh, but uh, yeah, I ended up wow. becoming a computer science professor. <laughs> Still wow. didn't know much about computer science, by the way. <laughs> really? Yeah. And then, yeah, I mean, I built, we built a very big group there. It was a very multidisciplinary group. We, I think at the time I left, we were about 50 people. So mm -hmm. with different backgrounds, mathematics, computer science, uh, physics, philosophy, cognitive science. We were into cognitive science too. So we were doing a lot of different things by the time I actually moved to Quantinium. And now the group has been taken, the group still there has been taken over by Alex Kissinger, former student with whom I wrote a, uh, Picturing Quantum Processes, which is also known as the Dodo book. And uh, an another person who's faculty there is an, uh, another former PhD student uh, with whom I'm finishing a book, or I've just finished a book, uh, Stefano Gogioso, who's also faculty there. So I sort of left my own offspring behind. <laughs> Good. And we take care of things. I was yeah. becoming like granddad. I was becoming like granddad. And granddad has to leave the house, you know? Yeah, right. Move on. Well, so fascinating story. Thank you, Bob. Um, so the segue is, you know, you were at Oxford, you, you know, were there, you were a Don for over 20 years, right? And recruited, I guess, or poached or however you want to qualify it, uh, to become chief scientist at Cambridge Quantum, now Qu Continuum. So it's a big leap to go from being a professor at such a prestigious university to working for a private sector company in the process of developing what's still a nation technology. So what motivated you to make the switch? How did you go from academia into the private sector? So it was, it was a very gradual process. Huh. So, so the story is quite interesting. I got an email from Ilias. Uh, at the time, I didn't know. And he, he had bought 10 copies of uh, Picturing Quantum Processes, and he had written an Amazon review about it. So Ilias wrote me an email. He said, hey, Bob, uh, I love your book. I wrote many I bought many copies, and I wrote an Amazon review. And then uh, we went for lunch someday. And from then on, we start to sort of more or less collaborate. Me, me, from my position as the head of the group at my group at Oxford University, he, it was then like a relatively young Cambridge quantum. And uh, this, this was sort of a, a mutual beneficial collaboration. I was kind mm. of uh, helping getting people uh, towards Cambridge quantum to get them hired. So more and more people from my circle start to be hired there. And I say, Ilias was also funding a postdoc in my group. And uh, I mean, uh, then Ilias also helped us uh, with a journal, which is compositionality. Ilias was also the person who actually funded the journal Quantum initially. So, so more, the, the, we ended up getting more and more collaboration going. Also, 
Ross Duncan, with whom I uh, invented the X-Calculus, he was then, on my advice, uh, becoming the head of software at uh, Cambridge Quantum. So, so the, the relationship became closer and closer and closer. And then at some point, I had I had a paper with Will Zeng, who's now the head of, um, he was a former student of me, he's now the head of quantum at Goldman oh. Sachs. Oh, yeah, yeah. Uh, he has the unitary fund. Hmm. So we had a paper on quantum natural language processing in, I think, 2016. And it was pretty much the only thing which existed. And then suddenly we hear that, that Intel had given a grant to uh, the Irish Center for High Performance Computing to actually start implementing my algorithm with Will Zeng on, 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 on like simulator at the time. And then when Ilias here, here, there is, well, we should do this, this ourselves. We should do this ourselves. So, so he let me start a small team uh, on a part-time basis. So we were all like 20%-ish. And then we started just basically uh, looking into the fact whether we could actually do that. Quantum natural language processing on an actual quantum hardware. Actually, not on a similar, say simulator, yeah. on actual quantum hardware. Wow. And this worked. And more and more, all the stuff I'd been doing over the years, like ZX calculus and all of that, became very prominent in quantum industry, more and more used. And uh, we in academia, we were also pushing to, to, towards industry, really. We were pushed towards industry, like getting more engaged. So I did this. I was a good boy. I did this. <laughs> and then, and then, then I wanted to, to, to get engaged in a more substantial way, like maybe 60, 60% versus 40. And then the university became so difficult and um, really impossible to, to get anything in place. So so they made it easy for me to 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 decide to move. Let's put um, it like that. Yeah, well thank you for sharing that. So Will, so Will Zhang was a student. Wow, so he's now yeah become quite renowned a unitary fund in his work at Goldman. Yeah. Just I know we're going to talk about music later, but Will Zhang was my roadie at my first gig <laughs> in 15 years, which happened to be in Beijing. Really? Oh my I love that. <laughs> Your first gig in 15 years in Beijing. So let's talk about let's talk about that later. I had that question I want to pose to you because I know you have a gig tonight, actually. Oh, yeah, yeah, that too. Um that's funny. What a great story. So listeners, yeah, you can be a roadie and then work at Goldman. As long as, <laughs> as, long as you know Bob. <laughs> um so I want to talk about categorical quantum mechanics, right? CQM and quantum native natural language processing, QNLP. So yeah. I read that you drew on the principles of category theory to produce this new highly expressive formalism called CQM, right? Categorical quantum mechanics, a part of which, as you mentioned before, ZX calculus is now widely used within the quantum industry and has become the beating heart of continuum's ticket compiler, right? So you stated that um, quantum native natural language processing is a field where AI truly goes hand in hand with quantum theory. So how did CQM drive development of quantum native natural language processing? Okay, so that's an interesting story. Um, so, so when I arrived in Oxford, I was still very much driven by um, uh, quantum foundational uh, concerns, and in particular, that for Neumann had said in 1935, three years after he actually publicized the Hilbert space formalism of quantum mechanics, which is standard formalism, that he doesn't believe in Hilbert space no more. Hmm. So for a long so so for a long time people had been trying to come up with new formalism, alternative formalisms of quantum mechanics, mainly following von Neumann. And this 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 in all fairness, in the previous century, this led to nothing, despite the fact that this was actually a major effort by von Neumann himself, who was probably one of the smartest mathematicians of the previous uh, century. Yeah. And, and and so so the interesting thing conceptually, so I'll, I'll focus on foundational issues here is that conceptually von Neumann always believed that the most fundamental thing 
about quantum mechanics, the thing you really need to analyze and understand if you really want to have a formalism that generally uh, tailored towards quantum, you should start with the concept of measurement and what the concept of measurement tells you about the quantum world. Hmm. And pretty much all other efforts followed that sort of measurement-focused attitude. Now, also in 1935, Schrödinger... Uh, it disagreed with Neumann. He said he, he felt that the composition of quantum systems is actually the, the, the very heart of quantum mechanics and m- much more than measurement. But nobody really followed up on that. Nobody really followed up on that. Hmm. Um, Schrödinger himself came up with the concept of steering. And so, of course, that view in the lay, in, in hindsight drew things like quantum teleportation. But nobody sort of used this as a way to sort of, nobody sort of said, let's now recast quantum mechanics in a way that composition is at the center of it. And, and that's really what categorical quantum mechanics was, putting composition at the center of a quantum mechanical formalism. And uh, the interesting thing, which we know now, is that measurement is an emergent thing. It automatically emerges, so, so, so Schrodinger was right, and we have a full-blown uh, formalism for quantum mechanics now, which is in the book Picturing Quantum Processes. Um, so, mm. so, 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 and, and I mean, I mean we, we've, in the case of ZX calculus, we know it is complete, which means everything you can, every equation you can prove with Hilbert space and linear maps you can prove with the calculus too, and, and it's become successful. Now, why why did nobody else come up with that? Why did von Neumann not come up with it? Because the particular brand of category theory, not to say category theory altogether, simply didn't exist until uh, it's it really started only to develop like in the 70s, 80s properly, hmm. that 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 the sort of tools we needed to formulate quantum mechanics in that way yeah. were produced. Uh, and, and, and then, of course, category theory is not the easiest thing, but then that there are results from the 90s by people like Joel and Street who show that actually this particular brand of category theory can be entirely translated into pictures, which actually mm-hmm. are the pictures which also Penrose used in the in, in, in Penrose notation. So so it, it, it became also like a user-friendly formula, not just like a, a high-powered, high-level one, but also user-friendly when you take the pictorial form. Now, so here is a, an interesting sociological thing because a lot of, the, a lot of for me, things I want to share are sociological things. Like uh, when, when in 2004, okay. we had categorical quantum mechanics, it, it is really hard to read paper. It's, it's hardcore category theory and all that. And that's the reason we managed to get in it in the main, the, the most important computer science conference. And uh, that's how I got my faculty position at Oxford. If wow. we wouldn't have written it like that and written it with pictures, we probably would have been rejected. <laughs> I wouldn't have gotten my faculty <laughs> position. Now, the downside of all that, the downside of all that is that we uh, alienated the entire physics community <laughs> doing this category theory. Oh, no. <laughs> and it really took writing a 900-page book to revert that. Wow. Wow. Amazing. So, so anyway, okay, let's not. So how did? So okay, so this is a categorical quantum mechanics. Then we had ZX calculus in two thousand and eight. Rose and I, which is now sort of more, which is a very hands-on thing, which is used for sub, uh, circuit optimization. You mentioned it's in ticket. It's it, it's 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 part of the state of the art of how you now optimize circuits and and make them as simple as possible. That that's just the cutting edge technique now. ZX calculus. Yep. Uh, Craig, at, at Google, Craig Igni is using it for uh, error correction or lattice surgery and stuff. So it's used very, very broadly now. Now, how did we end up with natural language processing in, and in, in this context? So in yeah. 2005, when I just started to turn all this category theory into pictures, 
I was explaining teleportation at McGill University. Uh, and in the audience was Jim Lombeck. And Lombeck is a linguist who in, who in 1956 wrote a paper on mathematics of text, uh, sentence structures. And this daddy came up with like a, an algebra which helps you figure out whether a sentence is grammatically correct or not. Wow. And, and there are different versions of that. Algebra and he came up with another version in 99, so, so almost 50 years later. So I was describing teleportation in my seminar with diagrams, and Jim Lombeck, he told me, Bob, this is grammar. Said, no, Jim, this is physics. This is teleportation. No, Bob, this is grammar. These are three group <laughs> grammars. And it wow. turned out to be right. So Great. at the level of category theory, the structure we use to describe teleportation, all this quantum stuff, is exactly the same as is pre-group grammars. Wow, that he would make that corollary, that he would connect that. That's um, fantastic. I mean, yeah, I mean... Wow, it's he, grammar. You could see that the algebra was just exactly the same. I did, I, and and yeah. then and that's that's how suddenly... So, okay, I mean, I, I thought I thought it at the time that this was an interesting curiosity until like a few years later, uh, two colleagues in Oxford, one was Steve Clark, who's now the head of AI at Continuum, and... Uh, uh, the other one is Marunisha Drozadeh, who's now a professor at uh, UCL. Yeah. Um, so so Steve, hmm. Steve, basically, I remember when we first, um, first met Steve, was in the print roof, and he said, oh, you're the cooker. Can you explain <laughs> to me what a tensor product is? Yeah, oh, who are you? And why do you want to know that? <laughs> and then, then after a bit of uh, talking, he said, yeah, we got a, he, uh, he was doing a NLP, natural language processing, like vector models, like you see now in GPT-3 and all these uh, big word models. Right. And he said, we don't know how to combine vector semantics with grammar. We don't know how to do that. Hmm. So on the one hand, th there is a theory for meaning of words in terms of vectors. On the other hand, there is a theory, going back to Lombard, and of course, people know Chomsky and all these names associated with that about grammar, but they were never, nobody knew how to bring them to together. Now, of course, our categorical quantum formalism, as, as Lombeck said, like the, the sort of governing structure is basically the same as the structure of grammar. Just yeah. like grammar govern, governs language as like a sort of governing structure, yeah. this, this categorical quantum mechanics governs quantum systems, and the systems themselves are described by vectors exactly how the meanings are described. Yeah. In, 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 in. So basically the categorical mm. quantum formalism was a theory which combined linguistic meaning and grammar on the nose. Wow, fantastic. And, I mean, I mean, again, again, sociological remark. When, 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 when we when we came up with that, and and uh, Steve was very excited about that. Then, uh, then I said, Steve, we, we can't tell people that we were actually inspired by that. This actually came from quantum or anything, because otherwise they're going to call us crackpots. <laughs> oh no! <laughs> so wow. we're trying to hide that. I mean, we failed because then there were like uh, front titles on new, new scientists, the quantum linguists, and <laughs> like that. Oh right, well, makes so 2010. Yeah. I'm not talking 2010. Yeah, so now it makes total sense. I mean, and now really. it of course makes perfect sense. And it's yeah. exactly the fact that we got uh, sort of this quantum model of uh, combining meaning and and and, and uh, grammar that actually that actually it's very natural to put it on a quantum computer. Yeah. So, Bob, I want to ask you about this implementation of an NLP task on IBM's quantum computer. So the segue is, you know, real world applications, right? Like how listeners are always interested in where is this actually happening? Um, it's, I read that you demonstrated potential quantum advantage for NLP uh, on you know, an IBM quantum computer. Can you tell me about how this process worked? And more importantly, what the broader implications are of this kind of capability? The biggest, the most important point to stress here is, 
that it is even possible, well, it was even possible two years ago, that you were actually able to train a quantum computer with, 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 with meanings of sentences, like with sentences. It was not just like words or anything like that. Gen properly sentences, we trained, we trained the thing, we, tra- we, we made it understand sentences to some extent. The fact that it even was possible uh, two years ago is merely due to this particular theory we are using. The fact that we actually have grammar as a given and other linguistic structure as a given. So that doesn't need to be learned. There is no way that any standard machine learning method people now use in a, in NLP could be anywhere like being on a quantum computing anytime soon because the data demands are too high. The training demands are too high. It's all just power driven while our stuff is structure driven. So that's number one. That's what makes it possible. Yeah. Now, of course, that, that the, the intuition that, that one gets now is that just like chemistry is quantum mecha- use quantum mechanical model, many materials using quantum mechanical model, we have something with a quantum mechanical model that's not necess- that's not quantum substance, but it still is naturally described by it. So that's where, of course, you expect the biggest uh, advantage in terms of speed off. So the first paper which demonstrated the speed off for stuff with this theory was my paper with Will Zeng in 2016. So, so we came up with some algorithms there. But but now with, with some new stuff which we've done recently, which is actually goes beyond this old theory I mentioned from 2008, and which is for text meanings rather than sentence meaning, and which has a lot of a lot of many, many more upshots. Like um, we haven't put a paper out, but it'll come out in two, three weeks. And there we expect the, the same quantum speed ups as people are hoping for in chemistry. Uh, and materials, and actually even more, actually even more, because we've got some additional benefits which are inherent in our new theory of language. So that's coming out in two or three weeks, is that what you said? Yeah, I mean, yeah, yes. I mean, I mean, you, you know how it works in industry. If there is an important result, there's going to be like a, a little bit of fuzz around it. <laughs> so yeah, well, we're yeah. Gonna, we're going to make a video and a blog post around it. But I can give away uh, a little secret. So what we have is a language-neutral representation of language meaning the thing is exactly the same in all languages hmm. and it, wow. it, it and it's in its a huge simplification we haven't yet quantified the level of simplification but it's a huge simplification of language but with ghosts without losing anything of the meaning so you re- you retain the content but it's simpler now this is a completely different story <laughs> talk about this but yeah. I'm just saying that's that that's on the horizon and that's where we expect like huge quantum advantage yeah no terrific so I want to pick your brain about sort of a bigger picture perspective based on, you know, where you sit in your, in your role and your history. So you're a founding father of the quantum physics and logic and applied category theory communities, right? Yeah. So yeah. curious to know, like, who are the various members and what kinds of work are they doing? Okay, again, they're, 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 they're very interesting developments. So the quantum physics and logic thing started, I remember, in 2002. Uh, wow! And this was this ago. was actually this was quantum this was QPL abbreviation, but not for quantum physics and language logic, but for quantum programming languages. And uh, it, it mainly focused on that quantum programming languages. And also, my first paper on quantum mechanics was by people seen as a paper on high level quantum programming languages. And that that's how we sold it in the computer science community. But gradually, and, and this is intertwined with the Quantum Foundation story, Quantum Foundations was becoming gradually more popular. And also the Quantum Foundations people who had a focus mostly on structure, not interpretation, they ended up coming to that event. So now it's probably one of the main 
you, the main quantum foundations event where you found still the quantum programming language people, where there are a lot, uh, quantum structures people, people doing categorical quantum mechanics. So, so it's quite it's quite a big it's a big thing. Like last year we had like 150 original paper submissions. That's a lot. That's a lot yeah. of papers. Yeah. Wow. So, because in computer science, it's a bit different than in physics. Like in computer science, conferences outweigh uh, journals. So it's where you get your paper is sometimes more important than where you actually end up publishing it. And then in that, in that sense, like QPL plays a very important role now. Uh, applied category theory, it was a bit similar. Like, like category theory was kind of like, and, and that's for, again, a completely different reason, was sort of dying a little bit as a field. And then thanks to people like John Bias and, and then also our work, we, which we started to do with category theory in quantum, it started to flourish again. So these are now people who are actually using like a lot of this, a lot of it is this diagrammatic stuff to tackle like problems in a, in a huge variety of areas, like going from economy, physics, of course, language, engineering, uh, control systems, uh, economy. It's super broad. It's super broad. It's a yeah. very, it's wow. a very young community. It's a very exciting community. So I'm very yeah. glad about it. Like I said, that community has its own journal, and it's actually it was actually paid for by uh, by Elias. Elias sort of wow. Elias wow. even pushed it. Huh. So, so, so that, those- are those papers like on the archive or like 150? Oh, yeah. I mean, I mean there, there are even pro- proceedings of that event. Again, like ACT is quite a big event. And uh, it, it, they, they publish the submitted papers as proceedings if the people want it. You could also publish them somewhere else if you want. It's like a flexible format we have. And then there's lots of interesting stuff. around. There's actually a lot of activity around this on, a, on formerly Twitter and now Mastodon. <laughs> Mastodon, right? The new, uh, there's a server, yeah, Mastodon environment. And heads yeah, up for our listeners, very right? vibrant community. It's a very vibrant community. Yeah, great. Let's talk workforce and education for a moment. You, as a former Don, um, for me personally, you know, issues around workforce enablement and education are, are fascinating. I know the Continuum sponsored a Calypso Quantum Summer School, Calypso with a Q, by the way on Malta in September, and kudos to you guys, a terrific example of a company taking the lead and helping enable the quantum workforce. But I want to get your take again more broadly on the need for general education as it relates to workforce issues. Okay. There's a lot that can be said about that. Like, I mean, I've seen the quantum community for a, for a long time, and for, there, there were periods where I thought quantum computing was very narrow. It was very never, narrow, narrowly conceived on what was actually progress. Fortunately, now it's much, much broader, and and so so uh, that that's why it's really important to keep on attracting people with a broad range of backgrounds. Mm-hmm. I mean, I've, I've given the example just now on, on on how we ended up coming with this quantum natural language processing, which which potentially can be a very very important branch of a quantum computer. It, it, it didn't come from, from just studying quantum computing. It came from first inventing categorical quantum mechanics and alternative quantum formalism, then seeing that it matches up with linguistic theory and stuff like that. So it, it, on, on the one hand, we need, we need a lot of people who are like um, proficient in quantum, but we don't also want to narrow them, narrow them down too much. I think the, the, the I mean, all, I've done this like my, my whole career when I was in Oxford, when people, when people were doing PhDs with me, I had like 70 PhD students. I typically, I typically wanted them, if they had a background in, say, physics, to talk a lot to the to the pure mathematicians and to the computer scientists. So I put them all together in offices, and they, they were yeah. all talking to each other and just all bringing all the different backgrounds together, generated new 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 research. 
and and this this should continue. I hope that there won't that we not going to go anytime soon to the sort of specialized quantum computing person because that that would cause a halt to the field and there's still so much to be discovered. There's yeah, still so great. much to be discovered. I think. Yeah. Well, thank you for sharing that perspective. That's fantastic. Now yeah. a different a different thing, and that's something we're actually uh, pushing very hard at the moment is that people should start becoming quantum native. And by quantum native, I don't really mean knowing knowing a quantum computing textbook or having studied a quantum computing textbook. But generally, on a deeper, on a deeper level, like embracing the opportunities that quantum gives it, like at teenage level. And uh, my new book, which I mentioned earlier, uh, with Stefano Gujoz, it's probably going to come out in December, uh, likely going to come out in December, is really aimed at a very broad audience, which doesn't have the technical math background, be it because you're too young or you never had, had, had the right education, but still wants to sort of have a sense of this this quantum world and and, and how it operates and how it's very different from the uh, from the from the from from the one we are kind of I mean not you but at least indoctrinated in. <laughs> yeah, that's a good way to put it. So yeah, worth calling that out. So the book for our listeners is called Quantum and Pictures, right? Yes, and yes, that's it'll be, out, it'll be out in December. You'd said, yeah. We're expecting so. We're expecting so. It's only its yeah. way to the printer now. Oh, great. So that's very exciting. Yeah, yeah. Bob, so, Bob, let's shift gears and talk about this year's Nobel Prize in Physics. I know that th- that is near and dear to your heart. So um, our listeners may or may not know is awarded jointly to Alan Aspect, John F. Clauser, Anton Zeilinger for, and I'm quoting, experiments with entangled photons establishing the violation of Bell inequalities and pioneering quantum information science. In your terrific piece on the Quantinium site, and I encourage listeners to check it out, it's a great um, essay slash blog, you state that in the field we now call quantum information, which is driving this quantum technology revolution we're in, it has its roots in quantum foundations, right? And you state that, I love the way you phrase this, and that the Nobel Prize, the physics community has now finally caught up with quantum foundations by recognizing the existence of entanglement slash non-locality, both in terms of its theoretical underpinnings as well as its experimental verification. So tell our listeners why this validation of quantum foundation is so exciting. Yeah, I mean, I mean, I mean, as I said at the very beginning, like I did my PhD in this area and then I was unemployed. So, so that was the situation. And it, I mean, I, I, I lied a little bit because I said there was not a single job, but that actually was... That, like like Zeilinger in Vienna, he had a group and he had postdocs. And the fact that he was doing experimental stuff was sort of justifying this. Uh, but, I mean, first thing I want to say, when these people like uh, Aspect and Klaus were doing all these things, and also Zeilinger, they weren't thinking quantum computing. They weren't thinking quantum information. They were thinking Einstein, von Neumann, Schrödinger. They were thinking about, like... Like, like, how can we truly understand quantum mechanics? What are the implications of quantum mechanics on our view on, 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 on the world in which we live, on, on, on the nature of reality? That's what they were thinking about. That's what they were doing, 100%. They weren't inventing quantum information science. And uh, th- this is probably a way for the Nobel Prize Committee to make it acceptable, ac- acceptable to a physics community, which had been come increasingly again against the, the, the quantum foundation community and some big names i'm not going to say them are, are very guilty about that we've like shut up and calculate you know, don't think about the quantum mechanics it's just shut up and calculate and these are really big names i'm talking yeah. Nobel prizes who said that yeah. and, then you get, and then i remember when i was at university you get quantum mechanics from 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 secondary teachers or something like that and then they tell you that if you ask a question ah, oh, don't ask questions like that don't ask questions like that 
just just follow the recipes, follow the recipes. It was really thought as like following cooking recipes. Wow. Like I said, I did my PhD in the foundations, got unemployed. There was it was it was the only people who, who were doing this were mainly people in philosophy departments. So in philosophy, I was accepted, but they were then also mainly working on what's called interpretation. And then you had all these political parties against each other, which was also not very, very useful and constructive thing to do. But then thanks to the growth of quantum computing, you could sort of start doing quantum foundations again. And then, then a few institutions have helped with that. Uh, Perimeter Institute was very important in that. Vienna, of course, Vienna, of course, which is now still a very, very big quantum foundations group. We have like seven, eight faculty. And then also my group in Oxford became started to play an important role in that because we were also doing uh, giving people PhDs in quantum foundations under the umbrella of it being computer science. <laughs> and, and, and then increasingly the field started growing, like, like QPL played an important role in that. And now it's quite widespread. It's, it, it's, it's becoming accepted. And with this Nobel Prize, even the naysayers ca- can't, can't ignore it anymore. It, it, it's sort of an established field and it's going to only get more established. Yeah. So, so that's, that, why- that's why it was so, not just for me. That's why for so yeah. many people, this was such an amazing event. Yeah, no, it's, it's hard to think sitting here in 2022 that, Quantum Foundations was parked in a philosophy department at some point. Uh, yes, exactly. <laughs> like really? And, and, wow. I mean, that, but one, one should like like a lot of these foundational questions, of course, led to quantum computing technology, the Bell inequalities. They did lead to to like quantum crypto in the end. David Deutsch was fully inspired by the many worlds when he came up with his algorithms. Uh, of course, like I said, like like things which are now widely used, like like the X calculus came out of trying to come up with a with quantum formalism following Schrodinger's idea of composition is at the centrum. So, so it has generated so much stuff and more and more. I mean, there's an incredible amount, like, like people like Terry Rudolph are also ve- always very foundational and he's now trying to build optical quantum computers with uh, Psy Quantum. So, so many people who are now at the head like of big quantum companies come from quantum foundations. There's me, yeah. there's Terry, there's many. So, yeah. So it really has its roots in 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 quantum foundations in many 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 ways. Yeah, well, no, thank you for sharing that perspective. It's a great insight. So I'm gonna shift gears a little sidebar quickly and just just talk about music for a moment. I know you play guitar and compose. Um, I'm a bass player, as you may know. I have a gig this Saturday. You have a gig tonight, actually, in Oxford. Yeah. Right. So just yeah. you know, just tell our listeners again the cutting a broad swath in terms of skills and interests. You know, what kind of gigs are you doing these days? Are you in a band or? Well, I mean, I mean, there, 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 player, right? there, there's a lot. So initially, I did PhD because I was if I wanted to fund a music career, believe huh. it or not. So, and it, as a, at the end of my PhD, PhD, I neither I need a science career nor a music career. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, but well, reason recently, a lot of good things happened. Like, first of all, after we started to do NLP with quantum computers, ever ever, ever we done it. Uh, I was also involved with uh, Eduardo Miranda, who's like a computer yeah. music composer, yeah. computer music. And then we worked together. And we actually turned our software called Lambeck uh, for doing NLP into Quanthoven, which was actually a software to generate music based on musical grammars. Yeah. So, so that's something we did. 
And uh, software is just, I should say it, like our software for quantum natural language processing is freely available, open source as Lambic. And so also Quantoven is freely available. But a funny thing which happened then is like we generated some songs with little effort. We didn't, it was not very well thought, it was just a proof of concept. But one of them ended up being coming number one in a classical chart. <laughs> really? Wow. <laughs> Amazing. Well, so, yeah, yeah, I mean, so I used to play music. In, it was quite industrial, like a... In, in, in the 90s, mostly in the 90s. And then we we were trying to do it all with computers, totally self-produced, which was really difficult at the time. We, wow. we did manage to, to, to get an album, but then I had to leave the country because of circumstances with my academic career. And then it just, it never really came out. We, 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 had, we had offers from record companies, but we, we, we weren't happy with them and stuff like that. So nothing yeah. really happened. So, so like I said, at some point I started playing again. I'm not not, not going to say why. I think it was 2013. We will sing as my roadie in Beijing. <laughs> and I was I was mainly playing like the old music again, but then reproduced for a solo act. Reproduced oh. for a solo act. Uh, then, I mean, two, three years ago, I started to make new music again on my own, mainly yeah. on my own, myself. And now I think probably in January, two albums are going to come out. One wow. is basically the music from the 90s, who's finally going to come out, uh, remastered, and then, then a new album, a new album which is going to come out. And uh, like this, at least this month in uh, Oxford magazine, music magazine, I was, I was called the most promising act of Oxfordshire, which is a big <laughs> deal because we've got bands like uh, Radio yeah. and stuff. Yeah, yeah, totally, yeah. yeah. Well, that's so, but, so thank I mean, you I mean, for sharing that. Yeah, <laughs> you have a good gig tonight, and uh, yeah, we'll, uh, we'll. listeners look for your albums. I guess there'll be info on your site about where they can get the records, or is it on Apple Music? They will, they will appear. They will appear in in on, in two months, probably on any streaming site, on any streaming yeah. site, and then later also physical. Great. So, Bob, I like to end the podcast. We're coming to the end of our time here. I want to ask you for your vision of where you think quantum computing might be in, I usually say, sort of a five to 10 year time frame. And, you know, more broadly, what kind of impact you think it's going to have on how we live and work based on, you know, your history and your current role? Yeah. I mean, there, there are the things which, like many people in the community are saying, uh, on, on, on where we expect benefits in chemistry and all that. So, so I want to, so I want to say a few complementary things. So, so what I'm hoping deeply, very deeply, uh, is that it will also impact society, not just in technological ways, but like that we go to a post-Aristotelian way of reasoning about reality. And uh, what I mean by that is like society is very much focused on like looking at things in isolation. Science has been very much focused on looking at things in isolation. Like biology used to mean autonomy. Uh, mathematics was, was broken down into elements in set theory. Physics people were obsessing with particle physics. And by the way, uh, the, string, the, the focus of CERN on string theory was a big time destroyer of many careers in the 90s. And part, part of the reason there were so few other jobs jobs available in other, other parts of physics. So I do hope that, that this sort of reductionist view on reality gets finally broken down by quantum mechanics because quantum mechanics forces out of this reductionist view into a more sort of relational conception of reality, like uh, uh, how things interact with each other. And I, and I hope that, that, that this actually is going to change how people raising and all that. I think this is already happening a little bit with internet, the good, the good part of internet. But that's what, and I, and I very much hope that the book Quantum in Pictures is going to play a, ma a major role in that. That people at a young age can start. That's what I actually meant 
by this quantum reasoning and quantum native that you focus on interaction rather on what on what a thing is like how things relate to each other and then the other part of course of what i hope between five and ten years is that there will be things i wouldn't have a clue about now that they would even that it could even happen because if everything would be predictable it would be very boring <laughs> i agree <laughs> Wow. I mean, I wouldn't be, I wouldn't have expected myself here sitting here doing natural language on quantum computers, for example. At the same time, I don't think that many pe people envisioned like the iPhones and things like that to, to become what they were and or, or internet, so to say. In the 60s, 70s, people didn't think there was going to be something like internet, you know. Uh, so, I mean, and, and, and that, I expect the same to happen with quantum. Things are going to come out, which we totally didn't expect. Yeah. Bob, thank you for sharing that perspective. Uh, we've come to the end of our time. I really appreciate you speaking with me today and uh, sharing your insight and experience with our listeners. So uh, it was a pleasure. Thanks so much. Thank you. Bye. Good luck with the gig. Yeah, thanks. You too. Have a good gig. So I want to invite people to follow you and the company on LinkedIn. I'm going to point them to the website, continuum.com. I want to mention that you're on other social media channels, you're on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, and YouTube at ContinuumQC is the handle for those social media um, channels. Thanks again, Bob, for joining me today, and thanks to all of you for listening. Please share this podcast on social media channels to increase the impact of my conversation with Bob, and listen to my other podcast episodes if you haven't already, and feel free to connect with me on LinkedIn. This has been a production of Inside Quantum Technology. You've been listening to the Quantum Tech Pod, brought to you by Inside Quantum Technology. For more information on this episode or other topics relating to quantum technology, visit InsideQuantumTechnology.com.